This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Idea City Podcast. For more information or to watch talks online, go to ideacity.ca or check out the Idea City channel on YouTube. Hello, and welcome to Idea City on the Air. By the end of the next half hour, you'll be inspired and enlightened by the world's biggest ideas, innovations, and breakthroughs as you hear about them in talks from the planet's smartest people. Moses Neimer's three-day annual Idea City conference in Toronto has been called Canada's premier meeting of the minds, and we're glad to have your mind with us. In this episode of Idea City on the Air, Julia Enders speaks about the secret life of the gut. Now, let's join Moses as he introduces Julia to the stage. How many of you uh, read while you're sitting on the toilet? (laughs) I rest my case. And uh, how many of you store your tension here, as opposed to here? Yeah. So, um, I ask these questions uh, because uh, if, if you've answered those questions the way I have, you'll want to read this book. It's called Gut. It's by Julie Anders, and uh, it's become this unexpected, wild, runaway publishing success. I believe it's sold well into the millions now, has been translated to 30 countries. And uh, while it deals, I've got them listed here, with the usual unexpected heartburn, digestion, constipation, defecation, and all the other obvious bowel movements, the message of the book is that the gastrointestinal tract is not only the body's most underappreciated organ, but it's also the brain's, quote, most important advisor. This is Julia Enders. Hi, Julia. Welcome. Something that happened to me quite frequently a few years ago was this, especially at family gatherings or parties. um, Someone would come up to me and they would ask me, what are you doing? And I would usually have this very magical thing to reply. I would say one word, medicine. And everybody would be pretty excited, pretty happy and satisfied. (laughs) But this wouldn't last so long, as you can see. Because after 10 seconds, somebody would say, and which specialty do you want to move into? And this would be the moment when I would have to strip down in honesty and say, since the first semester I've been completely hooked on the gut. It started with the anus and now it's the whole intestinal tract. (laughs) And it would maybe get awkwardly silent in the room. 
And I always thought this was kind of sad because in my opinion, the bowels are quite charming. <laughs> and I think it's sort of interesting because we're in a time where people are thinking about what new superfood to put in their smoothie or if gluten is maybe bad for them. But it seems to me that hardly anyone really seems to care about the actual organ where this takes place, the rough mechanisms behind it all and how it works, kind of like we're trying to figure out a magic trick, but we're not looking at the magician because he's maybe a bit embarrassing or something. And for me personally, it took three steps to really love the gut. And today I want to invite you to follow me on those three steps. And um, science had a rough start with the gut as well. Um, because it's complex, we see that the area is very big, 40 times the surface of our body. In such a tight pipe, there's so much of our immune system, two-thirds of the immune cells being trained there. We have 100 trillions of bacteria in all possible combinations, 20 different kinds of hormones, and the nervous system itself is so independent that when you cut out a piece and you poke it, it mumbles back at you friendly. We look at the three steps, and this is already the first one. It's just to look at it, to look at the gut, maybe ask questions like, how does it work? And why does it sometimes look so weird in order to function? And the first person to ask um, this sort of questions wasn't me, actually, it was my roommate. He came into our shared kitchen after a night of heavy drinking, and he said to me, Julia, you study medicine, how does pooping work? And I had dealt with the gut, I thought it was interesting at that point. I did study medicine, but I had no idea about that part. So um, I went up to my room and I looked it up in different books and here's what I found. Turns out we have two sphincters. Most people really only know the outer one. We kind of know what's going on there, we can control it. So if I would ask you to go like, oh, 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 um, then you are probably doing it right now, I don't know, because you're doing it with your butt. <laughs> but you see, you can do this, you can move, <laughs> you can control, you can know what's going on there, um, because the outer one is conscious and we can control this one. But the inner one is a very different game. Um, it's more subconscious, we can't really, uh, we don't know what's going on there, we don't feel it, we can't control it that well. So what happens? When there are rests from digestions being delivered to this inner sphincter, it opens up in a reflex and lets a little bit through for testing. Because there are sensory cells there that will analyze what has been delivered. Is it gaseous, is it solid? We'll analyze this and send the information up to our brain. And this is the moment when our brain knows, oh, I've got to go to the toilet, or gaseous, or something. Now, brain then does what it's designed for with its conscious consciousness, and it will um, mediate with our surrounding. So it will say, so listen, um, I checked. We are... <laughs> We are at Idea City here. <laughs> Gaseous, maybe, if you're sitting on the sides and you know you can deliver it silently. <laughs> Solid, nah, not such a good idea at that very moment. So the two will, in, you know, uh, cooperate and um, will put it back into some sort of waiting line. <laughs> Thank you.
and maybe later when you're at home and you have nothing better to do really, then you're free to go. Um, I really like that inner sphincter dude all of a sudden, because, you know, for once, he doesn't care so much about the outer world and what everybody think, thinks or is talking about so much, but really just how I'm doing inside. So I like that. I thought that was kind of nice. And so when he now puts a suggestion on my daily agenda to go to the toilet, for example, I consider it much more. And I used to not be a great fan of public restrooms, but now I can basically go anywhere, because I've... <laughs> found some new, you know, I promoted the inner sphincter. <laughs> it also taught me something else, which was, there was a thing, a part of myself that I shied away from. I thought it's maybe oh, a little awkward or icky or something. And just looking at it closely and clearly and actually being surprised on what need of process is happening there, um, left me feel uh, more fearless and also appreciate parts of myself more. And I think this happens many times when you look at the gut. And um, also other things can be helpful, um, like looking at the weird shape of our stomach. We see that the esophagus doesn't go in straight in the top, but a little on the side. So this results in a actually smart design um, and us being able to put pressure on our belly, like when we're laughing or doing sports without vomiting because all the pressure will go up and not so much to the side. So then what happens is we get this air bubble in the stomach that's usually visible in x-rays as well. Um, and this can sometimes cause people to feel a bit of discomfort after eating because it, when it gets too large, it can press on nerves of the heart or something. But it can also just really simply lead to people being able to burp much more easily when they're laying on the left side instead of the right. Coming up after the break. When you look at the gut and the brain, the nerves that are connecting both, um, really 10% of those deliver information from the brain to the gut. 90% deliver information from our gut to our brain. Welcome back to Idea City on the Air. You're listening to Julia Ender speak about the secret life of the gut. When you look at the gut and the brain, the nerves that are connecting both, um, really 10% of those deliver information from the brain to the gut. And I think we all know those situations. It's when we're having an um, important or big exam or a stressful day or an important day at the office. Um, then we can be really nervous. Um, and we can tell this to our gut through nerves or also things we, um, transmitters we put in our bloodstream. And the gut will then be informed. And it can um, then save energy, which is very nice and cooperative of it to do so. So it might maybe lose some um, appetite or it will actually have things like nervous um, nervous puking, throwing up, or nervous diarrhea. So it doesn't take up much energy. There's not much blood, um, there's less blood going into it. So it saves energy. Our brain can use this energy to solve a problem, or our muscles can use this energy to run away. So to use this mechanism is an okay deal if you don't overdo it. Um, but this is something that we, I think, many people um, have this occur in their life, and they know this phenomenon. But then, what's with these other 90%? 90% deliver information from our gut to our brain, and this is where it gets interesting. 
And the simple thought behind this is that when you look at it, the brain is pretty isolated. It's in a bony skull surrounded by a thick skin, and it needs to get information to know how am I doing at this moment. And the gut has lots of information. It has many nerve cells, the second largest collection of nerve cells after our brain. And it'll collect information on not only the quality of our nutrients that are keeping us alive, but also with senses on what kinds of hormones are in our blood or how the two-thirds of immune system cells are doing. Um, and it will package this information and send it up to the brain. So. What this leads us to um, get a better and better picture on is really that our gut uh, plays an important role in um, our brain and when it puts together a feeling of how we're doing. So something that this has done for me um, is that I look differently at my own moods. And I think science still has to go a long way to really see how big the piece of the cake is when we talk about our mood and the gut. This has changed the way I treat myself. When I, for example, wake up and I start to worry and think around a lot, then I just go like, huh, wait a minute, what did I eat last night? Did I eat really late? Did I stress my body out? And maybe. I'll just get up and have a tea and something light to digest. Um, and as simple as that sounds, it has worked really well for me. The third step we're going into is real cleanliness. And um, this was something that actually changed me to my surprise. I didn't think I would learn so much in this area, but then I did. Um, and what science is actually starting to unravel is a very new understanding of cleanliness, a new definition, if you want to say so. And um, I think many people, or at least I did, um, know the hygiene hypothesis, um, which states that when you're cleaning a lot and you have less and less microbes in your environment surrounding you, you have higher chances of having allergies or autoimmune disease. Um, and I knew this hypothesis and I, yeah, I didn't think I would learn much more, but I was wrong. Because then when you look at all the research with gut bacteria and bacteria in our guts in general, you see um, that actually lots of bacteria, and it turns out most of the bacteria are doing very good things and are not able to harm us. In fact, 95 bacteria on this percent of bacteria on this planet don't really have the genetical possibility to harm us. They either help us or don't do anything to us at all. And then you see researchers looking at questions like, are some bacteria helping us clean the gut? Are some bacteria helping us um, stay in good shape, have a lean figure um, while we're eating lots? Or helping us get the energy out of our food, protecting us from ca cancer or even making us more resilient against stress or anxiety. So um, this questions, these kinds of questions show that there's much more going on when we think about cleanliness and gut. Bacteria and bacteria in general. And I think what opens up is a picture that's really more about balance. We see that we need the good bacteria as well as we need the bad bacteria. And that it's actually also not possible to always trying to protect yourself from the bad, trying to sheltering yourself from the bad, which we have seen as a way of cleanliness for a long time. Um, really seeing this whole as a, more, a, a game about balance um, was something that changed in my head um, reading about this research. And a few weeks after I read all these papers and I've summed it up a little bit, I held a talk at my university. And I made a mistake by a thousand. And I walked home when I realized it and I, I suddenly noticed, 
oh God, this number, I was off by a thousand. And this is so bad. And I felt embarrassed and I wondered in my thoughts, how could this happen? And after a while I thought, okay, hold on. Most of the stuff I said was good and right and helpful. And then there was this mistake. So I think in all, it was still like a clean thing. Uh, and this was the moment when I was surprised because I thought, huh, I kind of use the model that I have from cleanliness from the gut here in my thoughts about cleanliness in my life also. So this is when I started having this theory, maybe we take cleanliness a little further than just cleaning the living room floor. Maybe we also make it to sort of a life hygiene. And knowing that this is not only about sheltering from the bad all the time, but really just as much or more about fostering the good had a very nice and calming effect on me. So in this sense, I hope today I told you mostly good and helpful things. And I thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> I read it very carefully. Um, it's interesting that, of course, the toilet habits and the toilet apparatuses available in the world are highly differentiated by economy and culture. You mean right? the, the different sort? The machinery. Right? The fact that we sit in the rich world. Yeah. And yeah. in the other parts of the world, they squat. Yeah, we have, and what you actually can see is that it's far better for the body. It goes with our anatomy to squat. Um, because we have a muscle that uh, will actually um, create some tension on the end of the gut and make like sort of a curve when we're sitting. Because we're supposed to work when we're sitting usually and not go to the toilet, nature-wise at least. Um, so really having more of like a squat-like angle when you're sitting on the toilet will actually be smarter. So looking at those squat toilets as if they're relict in time, it's actually a bit arrogant and also anatomically, <laughs> anatomically incorrect. I know that some of us in our travels have come across those kinds of toilets every once in a while and recoil in horror, right? It's we're, a bit, we're, I mean, it is used stressful. to supporting the weight. It is stressful to like go like you're going on your and skis or something. Your where do your clothes go? <laughs> yes. yeah. But I mean, you can create this at home. You just put a little stool in front of the toilet and you'll have the same angle. And actually... <laughs> I've been told many times now that in Germany many people have this tiny toilet stool now. <laughs> so that's <laughs> Well, it makes so much sense, but yeah. what I'm saying is the manufacturers, the people who build all of this stuff, you would think would take some of your advice. It's, it's not my advice. I'm just spreading the word. It's really research uh, by re really cool scientists like Dov Sikirov, um, or also some Japanese scientists that actually x-rayed people while they were sitting on the toilet. <laughs> I mean, this is science. This is real. <laughs> I'm, I'm also reflecting the fact that, you know, since the day that Dr. Crapper, that was his name, Dr. Crapper, invented the internal flush toilet in the United Kingdom in the Victorian era, there's been very little advance in the technology of the bathroom. It's true, because and we're often not looking at those areas yeah, of life. And they it was in Japan that I first came across the Toto, which <laughs> did this simple thing. They combined the bidet with the toilet in one device. How clever. Why did it take 
a thousand years. And I remember the first time I was in Japan and sitting on such a toilet, I didn't know what all the buttons were for. Same. So I'm naturally curious. So I just Same. went like, and it like, and I was like, ah! <laughs> like it just really shocked me at that moment. But you have to start learning. I felt like being, you know, like some kid shooting at you with a water pistol, I, I, just while I was sitting on the I, toilet. I had exactly the same experience. I, w I was in one of those really old ryokan in Kyoto, okay. except for this one thing that was humming in that the corner. Modern. Yeah, and it was an early version of it. So now they have this protective device that there's got to be weight on the seat or the thing won't fire. But in this early version, I was looking at it and did as you I guess you could use it to clean your glasses as well. I don't know. It's water, after all. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Idea City on the Air. Catch Moses Neimer's Idea City Conference live every June in Toronto or on regularly scheduled radio and TV shows throughout the year. And find hundreds of talks online every day at ideacity.ca. For more information about Idea City, find us online at ideacity.ca, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or youtube.com slash ideacity. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.